Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community. A number of founding teams that have met in there. A number of nonprofits that have been established a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Dorsey, Dr. Dorsey is a recognized expert on global energy, environment, finance, and sustainability matters. He's a serial organization builder and leader in for-profit, non-profit, scholarly, and governmental realms. In the for-profit area, Dr. Dorsey is an active investor and co-founder and principal of Around the Corner Capital, an energy advisory and impact finance platform. In the nonprofit realm, in 97, he helped co-create the Northern California headquartered Center for Environmental Health. In 2013, he and two former student collaborators co-created the predecessor to the Sunrise Movement. Beyond this, Dr. Dorsey sits on several nonprofit boards. He served 11 years on the national board of the Sierra Club. I was excited for this one because Dr. Dorsey has such a breadth of experience, and especially for someone like me who spent my entire career in small, high-growth technology companies, super important to understand the areas that Dr. Dorsey's deep on when evaluating the best ways to address the climate crisis. Dr. Dorsey, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, it's such an honor to have you. And I have to say, this discussion is intimidating for me personally for two reasons, or at least two, I should say. It shouldn't one be. is just, <laughs> I mean, one is just the magnitude of your accomplishments. And the other is that your experience is in areas that I have been working to understand better, but historically do not have a lot of experience or training with. And so I'm sensitive to just what I don't know coming in. Like what? Well, for example, the storyline with climate is, and I guess we'll we'll jump right into it here. It's not uh, typically how these stories are. It's a crazy Thursday. <laughs> I mean, the storyline with climate is just how intersectional everything is, and how you can't decouple innovation from climate justice, from social justice, etc. And I believe that, but I also spent my whole career in innovation with blinders on, for example. And I've never worked on a systems problem like climate. And as we talked about in pre-recording- I think that's a problem of Silly Valley. Some people call it Silicon Valley. But this problem of suspended animation, sci-fi beliefs, you know, beliefs in the absurd, I would call them, is I think it's unfortunate distraction, aberration, you know, idiocy that proliferates in Silly Valley, you know, this idea, you know, even in the recent debates, you know, that, you know, data is just data, you know, I mean, people that were literally saying that, you know, if you know about doing and building machines to deal with data, you know, this is stuff that's obviously rooted in race, rooted in, you know, politics. So thinking that you are somehow not connected to that, that's just bullshit. 
And anybody who is saying that, either A, is lying, or B, doesn't know what they're talking about. There's no way to escape these things. You can pretend they don't exist, but it's not possible to do so, particularly when some of the foundational things, if we just look at data, you know, technology, a lot of which the foundational things that people use are rooted in race, politics, class, these sorts of things. So, so you may think that you don't have anything to do with that, but that's just, that's just nonsense. And that doesn't mean that that's a problem, but it's just a point of fact. I mean, this is just the, the world in which we live is like this. There's no way to sort of get outside of it, you know, so. Uh-huh. And before we get too far down the path, Dr. Dorsey, if you don't mind, it'd be great to just hear a little bit about your story and I mean, how you would describe the work that you do and maybe a bit about the journey and, you know, start wherever you like and take it at whatever Zoom level you like, but just that, that led you into doing the work that you do today? Well, you know, I would say, given the title of the pod, you know, Climate Journey, I certainly did not start on that by no means. You know, I would not have imagined in my wildest dreams that seated elected officials in the planet's most powerful country would seek to suspend reality or adopt the view that fairy tales and fantasies were the way in which they should govern. So initially, I was working a lot, you know, my early research is on biodiversity, because I just assumed that climate and energy were things that serious individuals, individuals with integrity, bona fide leaders would begin to tackle. And I certainly didn't assume, and this is, you know, back in the late 80s, you know, early 90s, that these, quote unquote, elected officials and leaders, as it were, not just government officials, but, you know, heads of businesses and so forth. I didn't assume then that these folks would outright lie, believe in fairy tales and fantasies, and then dogmatically, almost in a kind of more like a religion than, you know, leadership experience, try to peddle a bunch of bankrupt ideas and try to gain office in the highest offices of the land, as it were, both on the government side or on the business side, and run businesses based on lies and chicanery and hoaxerism. I did not see that at all. I know there are a lot of problems with climate, but I, I thought people would be approaching these things in a much more serious manner than certainly they have over the last 20 years, and really more than they were doing even so 30, 40 years ago. And so I was working on biodiversity, and people kept saying, you know, you should be thinking about, you know, climate as well and energy. And I think the one thing that facilitated some of that course correction is that the area that I was looking at in biodiversity was the creation of commodities from the forest, the way in which biological material gets commodified, monetized, and so forth. And I began to see some of the same issues and problems happening on the energy side, particularly in terms of the creation of carbon markets and their large-scale deployment, you know, through vehicles like the European Union Emissions Trading Scheme and so forth. And so a lot of the bad ideas, bad policies, bad models that I was seeing in terms of the creation of commodities and the use of market instruments to attempt poorly to manage biodiversity, to attempt to get out ahead of the unfolding biodiversity crisis. Some of those same concepts and ideas were being taken whole cloth into trying to manage climate. The creation of carbon markets, the creation of essentially carbon and energy commodities. And I'd spent a lot of time, you know, my doctoral work was on looking at these problems and how these market approaches do not work, how they do not deliver results for biodiversity. This was happening in climate. And so that's what caused me to pivot to begin to look at climate because one of my concerns was certainly, like I said a second ago, I didn't believe for a minute that people would try to pretend that there was not a climate problem. But I also did not want similar sets of individuals and, or individuals working on climate to use strategies and approaches and techniques and policies that demonstrably or bankrupt, for lack of a better metaphor there, and demonstrably would not enable us to get out ahead of the climate crisis at the scale and rapidity and urgency that we need. 
And I think that that early work that I was doing with many other colleagues played out and proved out that, you know, the planet's largest carbon marketplace, the European Union Emissions Trading Scheme, or system as they call it now, they renamed it, all the data is in after, you know, essentially two decades of that, you know, broken system running, it hasn't actually driven innovation at all by its own assessment and its own measures. It hasn't actually got out faster reductions in emissions in Europe or in the various concatenated markets that are you know, nominally connected to it. It hasn't driven innovation in other marketplaces like California and elsewhere, probably now in China, even though these other markets have taken advice from it. So the work that we were doing on biodiversity, we pivoted to basically the, I would call that work, warning people that this approach to trying to manage environment and solve environmental problems around biodiversity isn't working in biodiversity. Bioprospecting and creating commodities in nature and debt for nature swaps doesn't result in protecting biodiversity. This is now, it's a fact, lots of lots of data on this. We wanted to sort of warn people, and we did, that using these approaches on climate creating carbon markets, doing stupid things like offsets and so forth, is not going to get you the results that you need to scale up the response to tackling the climate problem. And we testified on this, and we were looking at not only how it won't deliver the results that you need, but also how to create a whole sea of other problems, you know, criminal activity, false counting, double counting, a whole litany of problems in terms of how you measure what people are offsetting, how you may indeed aid and abet the mismanagement of you know forest resources and so forth that you put under these you know dodgy you know corrupt offset schemes and etc. So we took that work early in the early knots and began to work on climate. And I think you know with some success, I think you know testifying you know in Washington and you know, Sacramento and you know working with Interpol and others on why this dustbin, basically like the pink sheets of climate innovation you know, multi-billion dollar stuff on a good day, right? Why would you even fool around and waste time with such nonsense when you've got multi-trillion dollar renewable energy marketplace? And that's going by, you know, literally orders of magnitude in its growth and so forth, exponential growth there. Why even fuck around with nonsense like carbon markets and, and offset, you know, shenanigans and so forth? We didn't get to that point at the beginning, but we ultimately got there. And... I'd say a lot of that work has proven to be the case empirically. So taking a step back, what led you down the path of studying biodiversity in the first place? Where did that come from? Huh. Well, I've been always just both fascinated and in awe of natural systems. And really for me, I was particularly interested not so much in biodiversity as a kind of system of nature decoupled from human beings. You know, I come out of an anthropological tradition, tradition that's somewhat related to ecological anthropology, economic anthropology, and then one that is also rooted in sort of a theoretical disposition called political ecology. And that is one that's trying to understand the way in which political economic systems have implications for ecosystems. So really, it wasn't so much a focus only on, you know, biodiversity or ecosystems from the vantage of some biologists, and certainly not all, but many biologists who look at those systems, you know, isolated or almost, again, in a kind of pretend-like way as if they're somehow not connected to human systems, but really looking at the way in which political economic processes impact natural systems, ecosystems in particular. So it was that interest that I, you know, had as far back as I can remember, really, back in elementary school days and scouting, you know, trying to understand, you know, how were certain parks managed in certain ways, you know, who had access to them, what were the, the systems that enabled people to utilize them, how did they work in terms of, you know, surrounding communities and so forth. So that is something that I've been, you know, doing, my gosh, for probably close to four-fifths or three-fourths of my life, wondering about those questions. It sounds like from the earliest days, it was the intersection. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'm just <laughs> parroting back to make sure that I understand it. But the intersection of natural systems and 
justice as it relates yeah, to the way that, that us I, as I, humans interact. I don't know in, if I would interact. call it justice. I think you can say that. That's, that's a fair interpretation. I think I've always been interested in the intersection of political economy and ecosystems or natural systems. So the way in which, to put it crudely, capitalist or if you follow the money, what happens? What are the impacts of political economic forces and institutions? What results do they have on ecosystems, both small and very large, you know, both in your backyard, as it were, as well as up to the level of not just the planet, but now the galaxy, you know? Okay, so I'm going to try again. So is it natural systems and the way that the human systems are built and engage with those natural systems? Yeah, but it's not just human systems. It's really the political economic system right? There's a predisposition, particularly amongst maybe too many people in the United States, and lots of people, you know, even beyond the U.S. for that matter, to just assume that, oh, individuals can do these things. But there are structural processes, you know, happening all around us. Yeah, they have individuals in them, but those structures are, you know, the sum is greater than the individuals that, you know, make those structures. So I'm particularly not just interested in individuals or humans, as it were, but really political economic processes and structures and institutions and what those things do to, in this case, ecosystems and previously biodiversity, now climate and energy. Got it. Wow. And so so here's a question. You take any one of those things, you take the U.S. government, you take the Chinese government, you take one particular type of energy, you take energy in the aggregate, you take... Racial inequality, like any one of these things is a massive undertaking, both to understand where we are, to understand the history of it, and then to begin to understand what the different levers are for the future and which ones might have ripple effects or unintended consequences and, and which ones could be more impactful than others. That's before you even look at how that fits in to the overall system and all these other levers as well, which are equally as massive an undertaking. So one issue or thing I struggle with is just, it's paralyzing. Like, where do you even start to begin to understand it, let alone to to act on it? It may be paralyzing, you know, for some. I think, you know, fortunately, thankfully, we have, particularly in this country, and many other countries for that matter, we have tremendous, I'll call them knowledge resources, you know, certainly universities, the academy, as it were, but a great number of institutions far beyond the academy, some far beyond some closer aligned to you know, universities and so forth. So we have a way in which to gain access. None of those things that you mentioned, racial issues, China, you know, the U.S. government, you know, none of those things requires you to engage them from scratch, right? We have literature, we have you know, bodies of work that, you can access that by no means may seem daunting at perhaps first glance, but you have a great number of people that have taken some time to, you know, do a gestalt on racial justice in the United States. You know, it's not a problem that has an infinitely sided, if there is such a thing, (laughs) you know, cube of some kind, you know, it's not a kind of a tesseract or some gargantuan duodecahedron that you never can, you know, ever see the other side of because it's maybe constantly rolling around in your mind. There are places where we can, you know, engage. There's scholars, there's institutions where we can start with these things. And that, I mean, while that's a very common path for people that, you know, go on and get a PhD like me and many, you know, colleagues and peers, you don't need to go get a PhD to start with a body of literature. It's accessible and it's probably nowadays, given, you know, the internet and so forth and digital media, it's, you know, much, much more accessible than it was, you know, even a decade ago and certainly more accessible for many, many people than it was definitely, you know, kind of, you know, in the 90s and before the 90s, really. And that's a good thing. That, for some, might be challenging. And some people, you know, former students of mine and when I was teaching or some, not all, but some were at loss, you know, at a loss to discern the quality of sources of material. I don't think that that's that difficult at all. But nevertheless, even trying to juggle that with that small problem, I think it's a small problem, there are ways to do that. And so there are ways of engaging literature, there are ways of starting on these issues, there are ways of 
and not just doing it on your own. You know, every piece of literature you engage is a person that's written it. So you can reach out to those individuals and be in touch with them. Many folks are, are working on these you know, issues in a variety of and varying levels of complexity. And it's relatively easy to work with different institutions on these things. I think so. So, I mean, you've done so many different things in so many different aspects of industry or philanthropy or activism or the world. Do you have a personal mission and do you have consistent criteria that you use to assess what projects to get involved with and where to spend your time? Or does it vary a lot from project to project? And also, has it evolved much over the course of your professional life or has it stayed fairly consistent? Yeah, you know, that was perhaps the one question in the questions that you sent over to me that I appreciated the most. You know, too many of these interviews and pod-like things and whatever are, people aren't doing their homework. And I appreciate that you and your team clearly did by what you sent me. And that particular question was the one that compelled me to sort of, you know, reflect the most. Because I don't know if I would say that I certainly wouldn't say I have a static strategy for approaching problems. There's certainly been an evolution in the way I look at things, and particularly now, given the fact that more of what I do is you know, on the business side, as it were, on the money-making side, you know, call it what you like. But for me, if there are a few sort of touchstones, you know, they would be, in general, not so much on the money-making side or on the activism side or philanthropy, but across the board, as it were, is looking for things that ultimately can deliver justice in a large way, in a way that is fit for purpose and at the scale at which we need it in society, and trying to align with individuals and institutions and organizations that share that view. And also, similarly, not just sharing the view, because, you know, like my dad used to say, you know, ideas and views are like assholes, everyone's got one. But really trying to deliver on that notion of delivering justice in a way that is fit for purpose and at the scale to which we need it. So that, that's something I think that strives, for me, cuts across what I'm doing. No doubt there's probably folks out there that know some of the projects that I'm involved in that, you know, can be critical about, you know, to what extent is, you know, X doing, you know, that at scale and look at those other problems in there. But I think in the main, that's something that I've been committed to working on. It's something that, you know, I'm part of the Series A round of change finance, which CHGX is a ticker. We went IPO in 17 on the nice ARCA. And, you know, it's a fossil fuel free ETF. The CEO there, Andrew, my good buddy, loves to say that, you know, basically we're the, you know, an ETF of the Fortune 500 without the 400 largest assholes. But some might complain and say, well, it's only narrowly focused on, you know, being fossil fuel free. What about all these other things? What about, you know, companies that are, I don't know, doing prison labor? We, we try to weed those out, incidentally, but we have some other screens that we use, not just fossil fuel free only. So some might want to nitpick and say, well, that thing isn't doing enough on justice, you know, across the board. But my response would be, it's a, a vehicle to attempt to deliver on that larger ethos of, you know, scaling justice in the biggest possible way to ultimately, hopefully, benefit the greatest number of people. So again, scaling justice that, that's, you know, at scale and fit for purpose and trying to you know, realize that in a big, big way. So, so that's something that, you know, cuts across both the business work that I do, as well as the advocacy, you know, work with different organizations, as well as other sorts of things. And, and ultimately, even to some extent, you know, I, I think personally, trying to actualize that and deliver that. Is there a specific problem that you're focused on? I mean, you talk about delivering justice, what problem are you aiming to solve with your life's work? Well, you know, I'm a subscriber to the idea that injustice everywhere, and it's, we have it as an aphorism now, you know, injustice anywhere, really, is a threat to justice everywhere, right? So I would say that if we can begin to tackle in a meaningful way, in a meaningful way that reduces things like income inequality, reduces the burden that we see falling 
disproportionately on the poorest of the poor in this country and really around the world of those that are the poorest of the poor. We know, we've got great data on this, that those folks that are the poorest of the poor pay a disproportionate of income if they have it. And if they don't have income, they pay literally with their health and well-being to a crisis that they're contributing the least to, in this case, the climate crisis. So those that are poor, by being poor by definition means you emit less. You know, poor folks oftentimes don't have uh, certainly two cars or two houses, sometimes don't have a car at all. You know, they're dialed into a public transportation system if they can afford it. Sometimes you, you see the poorest of the poor are walking long distances. We see this quite often in local media. You hear that story of the guy who walked so many miles and some good Samaritan decide to, to pony up and get the person a car because they would see that person when they were driving to work. So we know that those that are at the bottom of our society, they bear a disproportionate amount of problems, whether it's paying money, whether it's you know, having their health and well-being compromised. So I'm trying to attach myself with projects and with investments and with initiatives that I believe can ultimately do something to check that problem. I think that there's an upside there, you know, with change finance to some extent. I believe certainly in, you know, the kind of core of my business is on renewable energy. We do renewable energy at utility scale. I know full well that putting more you know, wind and solar, we don't do wind, we do a little bit of wind, but 99% PV, that delivering that at the utility scale, at scale, is the secret sauce, as it were, and it's not really a secret, but the secret sauce on thwarting the sort of unfolding climate crisis, which is absolutely upon us. And I think right now, our portfolio in Spain, we have just over three gigawatts in development. That right now is 10% of the Spanish target for the whole country for 2030. They have a, a 30 gigawatt target that they've set in, in motion. So I hope that we will have even a smaller percent because hopefully that target will grow in Spain. But I think that the position we, we now have with that amount of PV assets in development is ultimately contributing to checking the climate crisis as well as delivering, in this case, a commodity, the cheapest way to generate power is you know, wind and solar is renewables. So that work, I believe that plays some role. Some may, when they do the math, may say it's ultimately marginal, but I think it plays a role in trying to stave off injustice. We clearly have a climate problem and we clearly have an injustice problem are they the same problem? You know, they've unfortunately become that, I would say. They've become intertwined in a way that the other exacerbates the other. You know, so it's been known, I would say. It's funny, the knowledge of the climate problem is actually quite old. It's, it's much older than a lot of people assume. It wasn't the data gathering at Mauna Loa in Hawaii in the U.S. that sort of first reveal that there is this crisis. You go back to the late 1800s and, you know, Swedish physicist Svante Arrhenius basically worked out the math for the greenhouse effect and what would happen if there was, you know, basically uh, running up of carbon emissions. And for the most part, he got the forecast right. Some small errors in his math, but he, he basically got it right. So there, I think there's a longer understanding of this problem of global warming than a lot of people know about or even you know, recognize. I've written about this stuff, the history of climate science, as it were. But I think now, fast forward, after essentially a solid generation, sadly, this will be a stain on humanity when scholars look back, you know, two, three hundred years from now. This generation, we've always had sort of, um, through the short arc of humanity, modern society, as it were, there have always been, I would say, a bumpy relationship with science, you know, and put that in quotes. But I think it's this generation that will go down in history as having had the leaders of the most powerful agencies, institutions, and governments having adopt fanciful, you know, thinking 
really, I think we had the, the age of empire. I think when all is said and done, when we, when we pitch out 100 years from now, and certainly 200 or 300 years from now, I think it'll be fair to say that this is the age of the cacistocracy, the rule of idiots and bad men and incompetence, you know, really ruling over large swaths of the earth, if not the entire thing. It's hard to say that now, but the previous American president will absolutely go down as, you know, again, a cacistocratic ruler. There was a time where people recording his lies and so forth, and this is a bona fide liar, but really just incompetent. So, but because of that generation, you know, this, you know, 30, 40 years of these incompetence, you know, mismanaging the climate problem, that mismanagement has webbed and interlocked something that didn't necessarily, I don't think, had to be. But it's really molded it almost together with injustice and where now the failure to get out ahead of the unfolding climate crisis has huge, huge downsides for those on the margins. They've been dying more so than wealthier people, those that are the poorest of the poor. They get harmed typically first. When the waters flood, they don't just have their house basement flood. They drown in that water. They die in that water. Uh, witness, you know, between you and me in New York, about 50-odd folks died from the aftermath of the most recent hurricane to sack the United States, Hurricane Ida. The supermajority of that half a century of individuals were black, brown, and poor folks living in substandard, unofficial, illegal housing, and they literally drowned. They died. They were murdered, I think it's fair to say, by those folks that had been incompetently mismanaging the climate crisis. So, yeah, right now, climate is absolutely bound up with these problems. And when you look at the existing system, and I guess I'm not sure if I'm talking about the U.S. system or the system globally that exists. If there is a single system, I guess there isn't. But, I mean, is it incremental changes to the existing system? Do we need to scrap the systems that we have and and rewrite from scratch? When you envision a system that functions better, what is it specifically that it would have that our existing systems do not have? And then how do we even begin to take steps to get there? Well, you know, I think in the interim, the pathway will be one of incremental changes as many folks that want sea changes, that want to completely abolish systems, have to still fight to do so. So as they fight for that larger change, which I think is absolutely necessary, absolutely required, those folks that are doing that agitation, as well as the, some of the folks that are pushing you know, against that, the counterinsurgents, as it were, I think it's fair to call them, each side will get these sort of incremental you know, advances, as well as some setbacks, no doubt. But I think we're also going to see some big surprises. One example that's you know, close to my work and our business is in terms of the price of renewable energy. I think it's fair to say that everybody in the business, you know, whether it's PV or wind, we saw the prices trending downward, but none of us predicted with any degree of confidence and accuracy, the speed at which renewable energy, the cost of it would decline, you know, almost essentially exponentially. The price has fallen out. Right now we're in a space where O&M, operation maintenance for solar assets, that's not quite for wind, but almost basically for wind and solar, for the most part, essentially the same. We're margin zero. Even though people put that in their models for, you know, selling the assets, we certainly do. It's essentially zero. Nobody saw that happening. And we're going to be inching into a place where the payback periods, well, the payback period is continuously shrinking. We're now at a worldwide average of about, you know, six-year payback on most utility-scale, you know, assets. That will continue to decline. And we'll be in a space where the term of the asset, which is, you know, 10, 15, some people still doing 20-year terms on big, big projects. You basically, with the payback being, you know, 20, 25% of the term, the asset's like an annuity, you know. And so that also means that energy could nominally be provided to bottom quartile, bottom quintile, 
bottom two quintiles, but two, you know, so half of, of a country or a given area that's served by some, you know, renewable asset could arguably get that energy for free. We certainly don't have that, but it's those sorts of things where the incremental work. So those of us who've been trying to put solar in the ground and put it on roofs, suddenly there's a breakthrough and a sea change happens. So I think what we're going to see and what we need, it's hard to predict when you're going to get these sea change events, but I think the incremental work that a lot of us are doing will catalyze and inspire and generate some sea change activities that some of which may be, we may be able to foresee and predict them, some of which will just appear almost out of thin air and have you know, sort of revolutionary consequences. And I think we don't have that conversation so much you know, on the energy side, but I think we're there in the energy side where we can actually give away free energy and still make a lot of money from it. We don't have that obligation to do that. But we're in that space now. And that could have huge implications on, you know, the world as we know it, certainly, because energy is so key for so much stuff. Well, going back to your statement about how this will be the era, I forget the exact word, but how we've been... The era of idiots. Yeah. The cacistocrats. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that was the one. Uh, and I asked you what should be different about it, and you, and you talked about some technological breakthroughs. I mean, what about the ruling part? Where does that play in? Like, what is it that's wrong with how we're being led today? And, and what vision do you have for how we should be led in the future? So that's one thing to go back. I would say that we obviously need a leadership that's not defined by incompetence and idiots and bonafide. Just, I'll just stick with incompetence. Incompetence that are running government, particularly you know, being the president, it's a recipe. Is that because the wrong people are running or is it because of the way our system works or like what, what is broken? Like, have you been able to diagnose what it is that's broken about our system that leads to that result? I think that there's a lot of things, you know, now I think, you know, in this country and in many other countries around the world, you know, the over-reliance and the overindulgence in social media, the way in which people receive information, not just news, but just information through those mediums. And then also the failure, not simply to just disconnect, you know, but the failure to seek out information, news that is rooted in credible sources, the failure for that hunger, as well as not just social media, but the news media in general, you know, peddling, you know, lots of lies, really much more interested. I, I think it's fair to say that most news now is more about entertainment than it is about the provision of news. And so we're in a moment where the commoditization of media, I think it disables a great amount of people in the society, as it were, to make sense of their world. And then if you can't make sense of what's literally in front of you in your own house, let alone on your street, let alone in your city or your town or your village, or wherever it is you are, or your country, then being able to hold leaders accountable is fleeting at best. Some people don't even know how to do that. So I would say that not just social media, you know, because I, I don't want to give some of the charlatans in Silly Valley too much credit or massage or stroke the eagles too much to think that they're controlling the universe. But it's really, it's more the media broadly defined and the way in which it's more about making money than it is about delivering credible ideas, credible information, information that is ultimately, I think, crucial to not just understanding the world, but enabling us to formulate ideas that are fit for purpose, that have integrity. So I think that that's a big, big culprit. And that enables folks that are charlatans, that are idiots, to come to power, to rule over people, to harm them in various ways and to use them and manipulate them. So people are able to use these broken systems, and they are doing this, to confuse people, to trick them. And so it's that nexus of some systems rooted in really just monetizing for the sake of monetizing, not delivering you know, credible information, and then people that have learned how to exploit that and, you know, witness, I mean, you know, great data from folks in Silly Valley, you know, about how, you know, Facebook and Instagram and these forms of social media inspire, particularly young 
children, young women especially, to self-harm and to you know, have suicidal ideation. Tons of information about that. And lots of data that, that these companies have you know, done their own research, recently you know, leaked in, in the press. But yet these companies continue apace. So folks, again, at the top, wealthy folks, you know, they block their children and folks because they know that these instruments could actually lead to you know, it could harm kids and, and are harming children. But a lot of people don't have that luxury. A lot of people are, you know, being fed things that they don't need. And that has huge consequences, certainly for individuals, but also for society writ large. And keep certain problems like climate, like economic problems, you name the various problems, like the problems of wayward leadership, keeps those things playing out and ultimately harming people. You know, witness the cacosocratic previous U.S. administration you know, basically completely mismanaging the global pandemic and resulting in, you know, the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives, you know. So do you think that the rise of Greta or the rise of the Sunrise Movement would have happened at the pace it did to the magnitude that it did without social media? Potentially. I think, you know, just as you have certain individuals that are exploiting the media, and it's really broader than social media, but the media to more nefarious, untoward ends to harm people. I think you also have people that are leveraging the media, including social media, to attempt to solve big problems, nominally what we're talking about in the climate crisis. So I think at the same time, there are and there have been you know, venues for people to get their messages out there. I think social media has enabled some folks to do that in a way that is beneficial. I don't know, you know, if we could, if we go back pre-Twitter, pre-Instagram, pre-Facebook. you know, Facebook. Most people <laughs> don't even know why the damn thing's called the Facebook unless you went to the Ivy League schools, you know, the origin of that name. But there is a time before then where you had social movements that were well-known, widespread. You know, the U.S. civil rights movement, the anti-apartheid movement, these movements were bona fide global movements, had nothing to do with social media as we now know it. And they resulted in, you know, sea changes in one, in the case of the U.S. civil rights movement, sea change in the, the way business is conducted in the planet's most powerful country, bar none. It also resulted in a complete change of the awful, evil system of apartheid in South Africa. Those movements, those social movements for justice, had absolutely nothing to do with social media as we know it. So I think it's an open question, but I, I certainly do, wouldn't believe for a minute if Zuckerberg and all of his bag men and bag women turned off that operation, would the world continue apace? Absolutely. You know, could it probably be better? Probably. Would people be less subject to suicidal ideation because of being connected to that nonsense? Absolutely. That's sort of a point of fact, right? The thing creates that. If you turn it off, then that thing wouldn't be creating it. Maybe something else would. That's up for discussion and debate. Uh-huh. And so getting tactical, so if we wanted to get out of this era into an era of more intelligent leadership, an era where facts mattered, an era where there was less inequality, an era where we were more in harmony with the planet and natural resources that we rely on to sustain us and other life forms. I mean, you talked about it would be incremental in the short term and it would lead to bigger things over time. What's your theory of change? How do we get there? What things should we be pushing on in the short term? What things should we be doing longer term? I mean, you helped get the sunrise moving off the ground, but you're also a solar entrepreneur. Like, I'm trying to understand where in your view we should go from here. So for me, this is not a, a question that is answerable in a single sort of formula or sentence, you know. There isn't like a magic pill, you know, I don't know if it's blue or red, whatever they take in the movie, that silly movie, uh, you know, that one can just be given. And presto, magic, you know, abracadabra, all problems are solved. I think if there is, for me, as you call it, a theory of change, it is one that is about working to deliver justice at scale and seeking out institutions and individuals that are committed to doing that and being a part of projects that try to deliver that. I think from my vantage, that's something that is relatively easy to be aligned with. It's not like the 
civil rights movement or human rights movement is some kind of big secret cabal that you can't find a phone number for, you know, you can't get an email for, or you can't connect with individuals that are working on those sorts of things. And so similarly, we have in this country, and we have really around the world, it's a global movement, yeah, it's not just with Greta, you know, she's a little bit late on scene, actually, in just in temporal and absolute time-wise, you have a global movement for climate justice, you have a global movement for energy justice, you have many, many activists, not just just even dozens, but more in the thousands and tens of thousands that are working on this. And it's relatively easy to get connected to them. It's relatively easy to lend support to them, whether if it's just in the form of writing a check or doing, you know, I'll call it critical, but let's say low-level grunt work, you know, writing letters and so forth, you know, visiting elected officials, trying to, you know, hold your own elected officials accountable, or doing something more sophisticated, like trying to run to be an elected official yourself. These networks you can easily plug into. They're readily available. They're just as easy as walking over to McDonald's and ordering a sundae or whatever it is you like to order at McDonald's, if you like to order anything from that place in the first place. And I think that the fact of that, the reality of that is sometimes lost on people. Sometimes people think, you know, how, how do I get plugged into this? Well, I was saying it, but I'll say, you know, Google is your friend. You know, you can really find out, you know, what people are doing and get involved in these things. And I think that that's well, much What are the key changes that you're all. seeking? Like, because we talk about how we're run by idiots and we talk about that you can phone bank, but what about that middle part about like, here are the five things that matter and to rally around and to bring about, and if we can make these happen, that's how we get the most impactful progress or just anything to kind of hang on to? Well, I don't, I don't know. I think that that kind of American memeism, sycophantic, navel-gazing individualism is a really distinctly American disease. I think it's a kind of a mental cancer that somehow in some way that too many people in this country, and not in other countries necessarily, but and not exclusively here, it's not universal, thank God, in the United States. But I think it's kind of a disease that people believe that if I had a recipe of five things or three things or one thing, some people like one thing, or one, you can't even, that then and if I did that one thing, as if by magic or sorcery or witchcraft, perhaps, that my life would be better and the country would be better and the world would be better. I think that's hogwash and nonsense. I mean, too often, I think this is actually one of the big problems of social media. You know, again, uh, the detritus of Silly Valley is that the focus in that box is on the end result, right? You see the human with the perfect abs, but you don't see because nobody would watch it, you know, Two years of going to the gym in a very, very dull way, sometimes not wanting to go, sometimes maybe missing a day, you know, you don't see that because nobody would watch that. You know, nobody would watch somebody walking in the you know, dark of the morning, or whatever, doing that over and over and over and over again. So I think we need to be thinking about processes as opposed to endpoints that are, at least in the way media often presents them, disconnected from processes. And that also means not focusing on individuals. And this is why I'm interested in political economic systems, not individuals, not human beings, but the systems in which the human beings are caught up in and are impacted by negatively and or positively. We have to focus on that, you know, because it's that stuff that I think and I know gives us the critical tools and infrastructure to deliver these sea changes that we absolutely need. And it's also that same stuff that allows us to have those incremental changes, as opposed to... What are the sea changes that we need? Well, you know, let's focus in terms of climate, given the, the nature of the pod, you know, the name of the pod. We certainly need not just, for example, the more ambitious commitment that the current administration has made, which we already know is not enough. You know, <laughs> if you're a student of political economy, you kind of know that... If the government says something, it's probably being conservative. It's probably not going to be enough. So, you know, a 50% commitment of reducing emissions is, is somewhere between 50 and 100% off the mark, you know, by 2030, which is a new commitment. It sounded great. You know, it's double the commitment from this bad agreement, you know, which, you know, why would that even be important? Lots of environmentalists are going around and plotting. So in terms of climate, we now are in the space where we know that carbon neutrality is not enough. Right? We've got to get on about getting carbon pollution out of the atmosphere just as fast as we've got to get on about you know, getting to 
zero emissions. So there's a double problem now that we have, you know, we've got to build out those renewable energy resources to reduce emissions drastically, but we've also got to get out the carbon pollution that we put in the atmosphere because we, we know that the science is here, that this stuff is actually going to cause problems over a long horizon. So we've got to speed up the way in which we reduce emissions much more aggressively than we're working to deal with them now. So th that's an absolute thing that we need to work on. And then in doing that, if, and I, I think it is certainly, if renewable energy, you know, and certainly other solutions, but let's just focus on renewable energy, if that is going to be a critical part of the solution, and we're now in a space where we could potentially give away power generated by renewables for little to no cost for those that are the poorest of the poor, we all begin to think about how we can do that. Right now, nobody's thinking about that. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody anywhere. Right? Nobody who's thinking about putting in renewable energy is thinking about how we can actually deliver on the right to energy as a human right. If people talk about that, you know, directly, but on the business side, there's nobody doing that. And so that actually, that's the space of being, like I like to say, around the corner, you know. That's really what's around the corner, how we can deliver this free energy, which is, it's essentially free. You know, when you're down at margin zero O&M, that's called something you can give away and still make money. So we're not thinking about that. So we've got to think about, we've got to think about some of these, we've got to work, walk these problems into the future and look at, well, okay, how do we quickly get to net zero in this case and reduce emissions, but then what comes after that? We can't just sort of, oh, net zero, we're done. We already know that that's not going to be enough. The science is already there about why that's not enough. So if that's true, then well, what the hell comes next? Okay. If we're today with O&M, margin zero O&M on renewable assets, well, then what can we do further than that? And if we don't give it away for free, well, this is how some of the math of the Green New Deal nominally works. We've got these assets that still you know, generate a revenue positive. We can move some of these monies into other systems. We can take some of the monies that come out of renewables and put some of that, those returns into education, put some of those returns into healthcare, put some of those returns into other social services that we desperately need. You know, the reason why this pandemic is out of control is because it's not because the public health system is broken, it's because it doesn't exist, right? So we need resources to build up that system because there will be future pandemics. This is guaranteed. If you could only change one thing that was outside of the scope of your control, what would you change and how would you change it that would most impactfully accelerate the transition? Well, so you like this one thing thing. I don't think that there is such a one thing. This well, is because not... if you don't have one thing, then you can say, well, everything needs to change. And if everything needs to change, then nothing well, changes. No, no, so maybe this is the Silly Valley hangover of zeros and ones. You know, it got to be one thing. I just like everything. accountability. I like <laughs> accountability. And, and without, without specifics, there's no accountability. It's all just like grandiose talk. Well, no, 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 no. I mean, I don't think there's anything grandiose about suggesting, you know, working out the math for delivering free energy or very, very cheap energy to the bottom two or three quintiles of society. I don't think there's anything grandiose about that. And I think that that's actually easy math. It's more like arithmetic. It's not even calculus. But that alone would be a sea change into the way in which lives of those bottom two or three quintiles of society, they would hugely positively impact them in a very, very positive way. But that is not just the only thing that folks need. You know, folks at the bottom of, you know, society, as it were, don't just only need free energy or very, very cheap energy, okay? They also need healthcare. So I think what we have to do, and I think it's kind of a maybe crude simplification to be almost silly to think that solving one piece of an aspect of the climate crisis or the energy crisis sort of produces through magic the corrections across all other sorts of problems. So I don't believe that for a minute. And I think, you know, thankfully, thank God, you know, human beings are slightly more sophisticated than to, you know, at least I'll say sophisticated human beings are thankfully more sophisticated than 
believing that, well, I'm only must focus on one problem and, you know, do damn all the rest of them. And if I focus on solving this one problem, it's by magic, we'll fix everything else. That's just nonsense. That's fantasy thinking. But it, don't you worry that that's just going to demotivate anyone that's focused on one problem on even trying? It's like, yeah, if, yeah, everyone, cause I, if everyone's I, I, focused I on one problem and, and the message is that there's no one problem that matters, then no one's going to get anything done and they're just going to stick their heads in the sand and go back to doing what they're doing. I, I don't believe that for a minute. I think that Sophisticated people have the ability, you know, and not to be too cliche, but to not just walk and chew gum, but to nowadays walk, chew gum, talk on the phone, uh, you know, and that's, and I'll be multitask. Sophisticated people have the ability to recognize that a problem that they're dealing with is connected to other problems. They can then align themselves with folks that are, you know, working on those many problems. Basically, what we're talking about is, you know, though they say there's no job description for the president, this is a presidential kind of, you know, this is a real leader job description. You know, you don't get a president who says, well, I'm coming in here to go bomb somebody. You know, no, they literally have a, a large agenda, and it's not an infinitely large, by the way, right? You know, you can go and look up, you know, any candidate, no matter what your political disposition is, you know, right, left, center, green, red, whatever you want you know, socialists, you know, whatever, libertarian, whatever, they have a platform. And so I think, I think what's important, if you're talking about changing society, I think you need to have a coherent platform. I don't think, I think it's nonsense. I think it's bullshit, actually, that, you know, somehow solving climate change will result in better health care. That's madness. But you're just talking about one leader of one country. There's a whole world like to think that one leader of one country could make a difference. There's a whole world out there. So why even focus on it? So that's why to take the leader thing, this is why we have fora. You know, fortunately, there is some coordination of leaders. You know, most people sort of mischaracterize this, but I have my own issues with the United Nations. But you have fora where countries come together and try to, you know, Sometimes the focus is not the highest ambition goals, but it is creating a floor, and a floor is, is sometimes necessary. You know, look, we're going to agree, you know, I want my nukes, you want your nukes, but we're going to agree that we'll at least come together and not just randomly use them, not do certain sorts of things. We have four that bring leaders together. So I think that, you know, the multilateral system with as many problems as it has, and it has many, many problems, that that is a space where many leaders can come together to coordinate on solving this problem, particularly a problem like climate. I mean, look, the failure, I mean, I think actually maybe both climate and the pandemic are good examples of this. The failure, and we're seeing this now with the pandemic, it's much more in our face, I think. It's a little more hard to grasp with climate. I, I certainly see it with climate, but I'll use the example of the pandemic. The failure to have good global coordination will force and enable this pandemic to linger on and potentially be more catastrophic and more deadly in a very short period of time. I got the vaccine the same day as the president of Mexico. That's just not like a mess. That's actually fucked up. That's insane. That means that there wasn't good coordination just in North America as there should be to deal with getting out the vaccine. So we have to have coordination on a whole slate of issues. That does not mean, and I strongly disagree vehemently, actually, that, well, someone is going to say, well, there's too many issues. You know, I can't do anything. Well, you know, that person, if they're so disposed, I probably don't need them anyway, right? I don't believe that we need everybody working on everything. I'm not that human being. I need people that have the ability to have a set of ideas and a set of issues. And if they're not the expert on that issue, at the minimum, to be able to, at the barest minimum, know about other experts that are trying to tackle that issue. And hopefully, potentially, if they see that issue is connected, biodiversity, climate, energy, water, let us say, to then align with those individuals to work on those things in a coherent way in a concerted effort to tackle that sort of multifaceted problem. That's actually the definition of sort of tackling, you know, these sort of sticky wicked problems. There aren't these sort of singular solutions that can be offered. You know, that's the sort of the basis for actually a, a domain of research, you know, complexity science and people that are looking at these you know, multivariable problems. I mean, there, there's a lot of space about how you can put this together that, you know, doesn't unfortunately boil down to, you know, a recipe. But I think it's a disservice to the one, the 
that body of science out there <laughs> that tells us how we can tackle these complex problems to just assume, well, there must be some one thing we can do. No, you know, it's unfortunate people believe that, you know. Well, this was such a comprehensive discussion. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? Well, you know, I think if there's anything that we can really do is recognize that tackling something like climate and other complex problems requires a lot of work. And it is a long, long battle to deliver not just a solution to climate change, but to deliver something more. And that something more is improving livelihoods. This isn't something that is simply just done and then you can go back to sleep. This is part of, a, I think, a life disposition, a lifetime commitment. And that sometimes may be elusive to some, but I think it's something that people, a lot of people step up to, many more should, and hopefully many more will. You know. Well, what a great point to end on. Dr. Dorsey, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. You've given me, and I suspect listeners as well, a lot to think about. And I think it'll spur some interesting dialogue and debates as well, which I think is really healthy and should help everybody, no matter what side of these issues they come down on, to learn and to build bridges. So thank you. I hope so. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for doing this. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.